Recently this month, United States President Joe Biden warned that the world could face nuclear Armageddon if his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin were to use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine. Putin, on the other hand, has made implicit threats of using nuclear weapons to protect his newly annexed territories as Ukrainian counteroffensives mount up their pressure. All this tension has led to the world facing possibly the greatest threat of nuclear weapon usage since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Which leads us to the question of how we got here and what may happen next. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today, our analyst is Liam Brucker Casey. Hi, Liam. Hey, Drew. Thank you for coming on the show. And focusing on the international aspect today is Kieran Buzonson. Hi, Kieran. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. All right, guys, you both are veteran analysts, so I'll start right away with the background of the situation and just first ask what Russian nuclear rhetoric was before the invasion at the beginning of this invasion. Beforehand, did they threaten nuclear weapons? What was their rhetoric towards nuclear weapon usage? At the beginning of Ukraine's independence from the USSR in the wake of its collapse, it agreed to get rid of its nuclear weapons and signed a treaty with Russia that basically the Russian Federation would respect its territorial integrity and thus of the Soviet Union, the only country to keep hold of that uh, nuclear uh, stockpile was Russia. But given the invasion of Luhansk and Donetsk and Crimea in 2014, and the backing of rebels in Luhansk and Donetsk. Um, obviously, that has come into question, but basically, uh, there was nothing like what we've seen now in terms of nuclear threats that came from the Kremlin. Uh, that kind of leads us into the question, Liam, of the background on the invasion and its phases itself of like when the nuclear rhetoric has come in during the phases of the war and kind of focusing on the recent Russian losses as Ukrainian counterfeits mount towards Kherson and in the east as well. Do either of you have anything to say on that matter? Certainly, as soon as the uh, invasion started, Russia announced that it had its nuclear response basically on standby at a, at a heightened alert level. Now, obviously, this wasn't yet a, a threat or a complete announcement of use of nuclear weapons, but it certainly highlighted the fact that uh, Russia was a nuclear power and it wasn't liable to let anyone in the world, certainly not Ukraine um, or its allies, forget about that fact. Do you have anything to add on to that, Kieran? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the rhetoric coming out of the Russian Ministry of Defense has been very typical, like, coded diplomatic language that's essentially a fairly thinly veiled threat. They've used rhetoric along the lines of those tempted to interfere from the outside will res face response never seen before in history, and more things along those lines since February 24th when, when the conflict began. More recently, though, it's been a little bit more pointed toward the, the types of support that NATO has given to Ukraine, uh, referring to long-range rocket systems, HIMARS, potential attacks on the Crimean Peninsula and other parts of Ukraine that Russia has you know, deemed annexed into its own state. Um, so it has become a little more pointed, but the, the threat will never be, I think, outrightly said, but that's just diplomatic decorum, essentially. I see. I think 
part of the reason I mentioned it in the intro as well is that uh, Russia has also recently claimed annexation of four different provinces in the Ukrainian territory, although they do not have complete control of these provinces. Do you both see any connection between both the annexation of these provinces and the possible threat of using nuclear weapons? The uh, threats are definitely built on a sort of very shoddy legitimacy that kind of comes from the idea that Russia would only ever use uh, nuclear arms in the case of either a nuclear attack or a conventional attack that threatens the existence of the Russian state itself. This already became somewhat precarious when in 2014, uh, Russia officially uh, annexed the Crimean Peninsula. As far as Russia was concerned, it was just as much a part of Russia as St. Petersburg or Moscow. But now with the annexation of these four new provinces, it also extended that same level of territorial sovereignty in its own eyes. No one else in the world except basically North Korea has uh, recognized the legitimacy of this, but has basically uh, labeled these four provinces, these four oblasts, as official Russian territory that's just as Russian as any other part of the country, um, and therefore theoretically could fall under the same kind of nuclear uh, protection as the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Because according to the Russian state line is that the nuclear threats are threatening because there's a threat to territorial integrity of the Russian state over the four new provinces. Could you go into Liam or Kieran anymore on like, what are the four provinces exactly? What does Russia claim to have annexed within Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, I can go into that briefly. Uh, with regards to the nuclear threat as it relates to these four provinces, I mean, we'll get more into that in when we talk about the nuclear doctrine specifically and the recent changes that have been made. But the four provinces are obviously Luhansk and Donetsk, which were previously these semi-recognized republics governed by rebels against the Ukrainian government in the east of the country. And then the other two provinces are Zaporizhia and uh, Kherson, which are bordering Crimea and actually form a land connection between Kherson, the Crimean Peninsula, and rest of Russia proper. So kind of the, the south and the east of the country. All, all of this, by the way, is east of the, on the east bank of the Dnieper River. So none of it's kind of west toward the more European side of Ukraine. I want to turn our attention away from the eastern Ukraine and just the situation in Ukraine in general and look towards both the U.S. and NATO responses to the Russian military rhetoric as um, NATO and the United States, of course, have been supporting the Ukrainian war effort, but they are the ones with the nuclear weapons that could potentially respond if Russia decides to use uh, a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine. What do you have to start off with that on Kieran of both the actions of President Biden and also him kind of calling Russia's bluff, so to speak? Yeah, so uh, recently he actually sat down for a fairly lengthy interview with CBS um, in which he was asked the question of what the U.S. you know, thinks the actual threat to be and what the response might look like. I mean, he, he can be quoted as saying, I don't think there's any such thing as the ability to easily use a tactical nuclear weapon, which is what the Russians are more or less threatening and not end up with Armageddon. So, I, I mean, I think he understands the threat very clearly. This is, I think, one of the actual advantages of having a president as old as him because he's one of the few people still alive that remembers the Cuban Missile Crisis, ironically enough. And then as far as the exact U.S. response, obviously, I mean, they've kind of called the Russian bluff because strategically it doesn't make sense to use a tactical nuclear weapon, but we'll get to that later. 
But our exact response is not really known. I think it's intentionally ambiguous as mm-hmm. a lot of kind of grand strategy with the U.S. Um, so he's, he, he deflected and kind of evaded without saying anything concrete. Mm-hmm. The term strategic ambiguity comes to mind, especially with regards to both U.S.-specific policy and in general policy. Correct. Although g- generally, for, for clarity's sake, that, that term is more reserved for U.S.-Taiwan we policy. But it's the same principle. Yep. Yeah. And also kind of unknown where on the nuclear ladder of escalation coming in and out of that. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. I also want to get into the response from other NATO allies, specifically those who may feel the most pressure from a Russian nuclear threat, specifically like Poland and the Baltic states. Do you want to go into that, Kieran? Yeah, I mean, I think the Pol- Poland and the Baltic, while militarily not the most important states in NATO from just like a raw, you know, um, uh, strategic perspective in terms of the size of the militaries, budgets, etc. Um, I mean, they're on immensely important strategic geography. But what's really concerning is the extremely hawkish rhetoric, understandably hawkish rhetoric, but hawkish nonetheless coming out of these states um, who have called for pretty much the maximalist approach these entire time. I mean, it makes sense. Granted, their history with Russia as essentially, you know, Soviet slave states, you know, and, and I mean, at, at huge human and economic cost to those, those nations and their deeply bloody history with Russia. But nonetheless, I mean, they've been calling for the maximalist approach when supporting Ukraine. I mean, sending jets, long-range rocket systems, all of which could move us up the escalatory ladder. The most important thing that they've called for, well, two things that they've called for are, one, in the event of Russian use of tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine would be a conventional military response inside Russia proper or in Ukraine from NATO, which would essentially require the Russians to retaliate and attack NATO territory, um, in my book. And then the second important thing would be their idea of calling for nuclear sharing, which is essentially extending the direct kind of logistical part of the American nuclear umbrella into Poland and the Baltic. So the way that we have um, nuclear missiles and other um, nuclear weapons in Germany, in Belgium, in Italy, um, and I think Turkey still, they would extend and literally put missiles and weapons in the Baltic and Ukraine, um, which would further kind of you know, reduce the flight time between those weapons and potential Russian targets. Um, which is a massive ex- escalation, and the U.S. has so far refused to do so. And just to kind of build on the kind of the motivations, uh, as Kieran kind of hinted at, but but these states, um, the three Baltic states and Poland, have been easily the most hawkish and the most aggressive. And also, while, of course, they don't have the same means as the United States or France or the United Kingdom are punching well above their weight class in terms of contributions. And it's not hard to understand why. I think especially for Estonia and Latvia, they, they rightfully see this as very much an existential threat. Much of the motivation for invading Ukraine, at least the stated motivation, was protection of ethnic Russians. Um, and nearly a fourth of both of these countries population, uh, you know, well around 20, 25 percent are ethnic Russians. So, you know, if that excuse was good enough to invade Ukraine, it easily would be a good enough excuse to invade either of these countries. And they were both under the actual direct control of the USSR, unlike Poland. But Poland also has a very extensive, long history with uh, Russia that even, you know, precedes the USSR. That's a good point that you make, Liam. And I also think it's interesting you mentioned both the two other major nuclear powers within NATO, France and Britain, what has been their responses as well? Have they sort of followed the United States' model or have they kind of made their own gestures or made their own positions known on what would happen if Russia used a nuclear weapon? Yeah, I mean, France's statement has been fairly in line with its relatively independent track record within NATO. 
um, and desire for you know a, a degree of strategic autonomy. Macron has made it pretty clear that in the event of a, a tactical nuclear weapon being used in Ukraine, that France will not be sending any retaliatory strike with its nuclear arsenal, which is a pretty firm red line to draw. As far as the UK is concerned, um, generally speaking, they're, they've also been the most hawkish. So the US, the Baltic, Poland, and the UK have been probably the most hawkish within the NATO alliance. But their rhetoric with regards to what, how they will use their nuclear arsenal has been fairly silent. One could expect it to be relatively in line with the US, which is likewise ambigu um, ambiguous. But given the current <laughs> amount of political turmoil in that country, um, at the very top echelons of their government, they have remained fairly silent. There. There's been other things that the United Kingdom has been concerned with of besides these other situations. Correct. I also want to turn back towards the recent annexations and develops in Ukraine. Uh, I think we already went over what province have been annexed. Another important question, does Russia actually have control over these territories that they've annexed? And beyond that question, I guess, kind of go into how Ukrainian counteroffensives have kind of forced Russia's hand, so to speak. Basically, of the Ukrainian, the internationally recognized Ukrainian provinces that are claimed by Russia, um, the only one that is 100% within Russian control is Crimea. But of these four provinces, there's all uh, varying degrees of control by NATO. Some, it's about maybe 90% or more of the territory. That's true of Donetsk, but for um, states like Kherson, Zaporizhia, Luhansk, definitely a more tenuous hold on the entire claimed territory. And I think that kind of already shows that theoretically, you know, official Russian land is theoretically occupied by Ukraine, at least from the Kremlin's perspective, which kind of uh, highlights why I think um, so many within Russian leadership have been chest thumping about the need to act um, with uh, such harshness. They lost almost all of the territory that they had taken in the Kharkov Oblast in September. They had a, they hemorrhaged territory in a really a, a blitzkrieg of a uh, offensive by the Ukrainians. Um, and then the incident or the uh, explosion um, on the Crimean Bridge or the Kerch Strait Bridge is a, a particular embarrassment for Russia, which considered Crimea really the pearl of its of 2014, considered it an integral part of the country. And really, that bridge was much more than just a vital supply route, which it was. It was a large symbol of Russian defiance and opposition to Ukraine. Yeah. And not to mention, on, to add on to that, Liam, also, uh, Ukraine getting ready to try and retake the city of Kherson and uh, both the what looks like to be a significant clash as Russia withdraws civilians from the province as well, but also readies to defend the city as well. I also wanted to get into both Ukraine's response to Russia's rhetoric and also in response to its loss as Russia partially mobilizing, doing a partial mobilization. Do you have anything to add on to that, Kieran or Liam? Um, I think uh, Ukraine, like much of its allies, is somewhat skeptical of the response, but anytime anybody threatens to nuke you, obviously you're going to be pretty on edge, I think, uh, rightfully so. Um, I think Ukraine has, you know, used this and appealed to its allies that, you know, the situation is very dire, that their enemy is one that is very much committed to um, really wiping off uh, or wiping opposition off the map. And then in terms of mobilization, I think the nuclear threats and the mobilization are actually really kind of part and parcel of a similar trend where 
Russia is really having a hard time, much harder time, certainly than it predicted it would have. And so these kind of more dire responses are 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 indicative of a kind of flailing, I think, by the Russian state. Do you have anything to add on to that, Kieran? I mean, not much. Uh, the main thing I would say is the main problem is um, this is contested ground. And they're asserting, as we'll get to in kind of the nuclear doctrine section in a little bit, they're asserting that they can use nuclear weapons to defend territorial integrity without def actually defining the borders of these regions that we've talked about. I mean, they, they state which states they have annexed without defining the borders. Are they the Ukrainian oblast borders? Are you redrawing them? Have you made any official declarations as to where these borders end? <laughs> and as, as Liam highlighted, I mean, some of them are up to 50% contested. I mean, so I, it's extremely frustrating and extremely dangerous with regards to the escalation yeah. ladder. Or even furthermore, is it basically whatever control that the Russian soldiers can c control over that specific territory? Is that where the non-specific border is launched at the moment? Looking at, the, I also want to pay attention to the nuclear arsenals of both Russia and NATO and the United States in particular, as part of the tension during the Cold War, so to speak, was like the ongoing threat of nuclear war between the USSR and the United States. Both, both countries have massive nuclear arsenals. Looking currently, who has the larger nuclear arsenal, Russia or the United States? So, I mean, it depends on how you want to answer that question. When it comes to total warheads, including those in storage, that would be Russia at about... 5,977 total warheads, um, and the U.S. coming in second at about 5,428. Um, those are numbers coming from the START II treaty, by the way. But the number that that answer changes if you look at those who are actually ready for deployment and can be used now. As if like if Biden went to nuclear football and said, "Hey, we're launching nukes now," the U.S. actually has slightly more warheads available for use at about 1,644, whereas Russia has about 1,588. Narrow difference, but still the U.S. edges out just on top for currently deployable weapons. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go into any of the differences in warheads at all, Kieran? You mentioned some of the locations of the missile of the U.S. nuclear umbrella earlier, whether that be in Turkey, Italy, Belgium. Mm -hmm. Anything specific, like in the difference of types of warheads, whether that be like ICBMs or submarine missiles? Sure. I mean, what you're getting at are delivery systems, right? Mm -hmm. So the primary nuclear arsenal of both Russia and U.S. is based around a triad system. So you have land-based missiles, so ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, SLBMs, which are submarine-based um, launched ballistic missiles, and then airdrop bombs, um, air-launched missiles, etc. Both countries have the primary bulk of their nuclear arsenal um, uses ICBMs. So Russia has about 312, U.S. has about 400, and the second largest one is usually SLBMs, uh, 112 for Russia and uh, 203 for the U.S. Those are probably the most effective because those submarines are almost impossible to detect and can be anywhere at any time on the planet, whereas missile silos have been in the ground where they are since the Cold War and are pretty well known. Um, airdrop bombs are probably the smallest. Russia has about 67. The U.S. has maybe 50-ish or so. Um, but the bulk will be via super-heavy ICBMs, which are kind of a development of the, the middle and late Cold War. Um, these are missiles that can reach the other side of the planet in five to seven minutes. They have uh, MIRV capability, which is um, multiple independently targetable reentry vehicle, meaning they can have multiple individual nuclear warheads on a single missile, which means you can have the missile go above, let's say, the eastern coast of the United States in the stratosphere. The cone on the front opens up and releases 10 separate warheads to go seek out individual targets. So you could have a single missile with, let's say, five warheads hit Boston, Philly, Newark, New York, D.C., um, and, tr and Trenton, let's say there's six warheads with just a single missile. 
do you want to go into the, like the French and British arsenals as well? I would imagine those are substantially smaller than the United States and Russia as well. Yeah, so I mean, we'll go into them very briefly, but they are nuclear powers. Um, France is actually the world's third largest nuclear power, although it's quite a step down from um, Russia and the U.S. The interesting, the notable thing about the France and uh, the French and the British nuclear arsenals is neither of them p possess ICBMs anymore, um, which is something that was kind of surprising to me researching for this episode. Um, they both use SLBMs. Actually, the UK only has SLBMs, where France still possesses airdropped and um, air, you know, um, aircraft launched uh, missiles, um, whereas the U UK does not. So while they're substantially smaller, France has 300 warheads, for example, of which 280 are currently deployed, and the US or the UK has 225, only half of which are, are deployed. Um, they are still potent and can, you know, level Russia <laughs> if they wanted to. And then, of course, like we've been asking here, we'll get into both the United States versus the Russian nuclear doctrine and both the differences of how both the nations perceive what would happen in a nuclear mm -hmm. war and the winnability of a nuclear war. Do you want to get into the Russian nuclear doctrine first? Yeah, I mean, so just to say, state two universal principles that pretty much any nuclear state has, all of them have the concept of mutually assured destruction. That the, the whole purpose of nuclear weapons from a strategic point of view is to deny, you know, your enemy um, combat ability on a battlefield or to be invaded in the first place, right? Which is the primary primary effect of deterrence. And then all countries usually have a first use scenario. So let's say you get nuked <laughs> by other countries, or you hear that they have launched nukes that are going to, you know, be in your country relatively soon. That constitutes a first use scenario. Russia's particular nuclear doctrine has that first use scenario. Specifically, it's aggression against Russia with the use of conventional weapons when the very existence of the state is threatened. So essentially an ex existential threat to the state, as Liam mentioned earlier, um, is at stake. They will use nuclear weapons uh, to retaliate and protect the existence of their state. Their second use scenario, which is a retaliatory strike, essentially in, in the response to the use of nuclear weapons or other WMDs against Russia or its allies, um, Russia will employ nuclear weapons to retaliate. Um, notably, those allies, by the way, include the, the CTSO nations, which are the, it's a series of treaties with post-Soviet states, so Belarus, Armenia, um, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, etc. So those actually are, are included in that. And then the recent addition, which has everyone kind of losing their minds, is in a speech in September, uh, Vladimir Putin threatened the use of nukes, and this constitutes an official addition to their doctrine, by the way, in response to the threatening of Russian territorial integrity. The problem is the West, Ukraine, and Russia all have different conceptions of what that means. <laughs> um, so we don't legally recognize their annexation of Ukraine, of any of these other provinces in, um, or sorry, Crimea, and all these other provinces that have been annexed in Ukraine, but Russia does. So as we mentioned earlier with the, con you know, the, the currently contested ground point, what constitutes a violation of territorial integrity under this new addition of their doctrine? And to kind of like demonstrate, uh, NATO uh, never let Ukraine uh, join, or another similar country that may have wanted to join, such as Georgia, for many reasons, but one of the main reasons was that they had disputed territorial uh, sovereignty, that they did not control all the land that they claimed. And that becomes a very scary prospect to allow them to join NATO um, because they would theoretically have this territory be under the control of a foreign power, but also uh, under protection. And the same kind of principle applies to Russia itself with these territories. I also want to get into the differences between American and Russian nuclear doctrine as well, Kieran. You said there was like a lot of the nuclear strategies of both the Soviet Union and the United States during the Cold War have been released. And there's a significant difference, it seems, between the United States and Russia of like the winnability of a nuclear war. 
Could you briefly go into that before we summarize sure. what's on the day? I, generally, no one really thinks they can win a nuclear war. The Russians, I think, sort of do. Basically, they just argue that the size of the Russian nation is enough that part of their nation will survive, even if many of the urban centers get destroyed by nuclear weapons. The difference between new, uh, Russian and U.S. nuclear doctrine primarily is the U.S. has very clearly stated principles that you can literally go see on DOD.gov um, that are laid out and all these different use case scenarios for policymakers across the world to look at. Likewise, France, the UK have similarly clearly outlined points, whereas the Russian doctrine seems to be a little bit more fluid, which poses quite the danger. Mm-hmm. All right. I want to get into some, just some, hear some final thoughts from you both of just overall summarizing the information that we've gone through today. First off, where do you think this rhetoric will lead to? And then second off, how much of a chance do you think there is of Russia using a tactical or nuclear weapons in general in this conflict? And if you want to give a number or a percentile to that, uh, you can. Either of you are free to start out. I mean, I think the rhetoric isn't good. I'll, I'll make that statement. I don't think, uh, if you want me to give a percentage, I would say it's in the, I'd say it's definitely below 10% in my opinion, probably well below, but I'll just say that it doesn't benefit the, the either nation, and it only serves to escalate, and Russia is being like very reckless, uh, I would say, with these threats. I would just add that while I don't know that it's the most useful thing to try and put a percentage, it could be 8%, it could be 12 it could be 15 it could be 20 who knows? Any percent above 0% is too high. Um, and I'd like, I'd actually encourage everyone to look up a term called logical insanity, uh, coined by historian Dan Carlin, which basically... Actor, seemingly rational actors take individually rational logical steps that end up at a place that is objectively insane if you look at it from the outside. The use of nuclear weapons is a philosophically and logically absurd premise to begin with. But states in the escalation ladder can take these individual actions that escalate and escalate and ramp up so slowly that they seem rational and, and completely logical over time, but you end up at this insane place. And I would encourage everyone to consider that when you look at what policymakers are doing on both sides of this. And especially the speed at which those logical decisions can be made. Correct. And remember, the use of a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine can go strategic, meaning global, within 24 to 48 hours. We make a distinction, the Russians make a distinction between tactical nuclear weapons and strategic. We don't. Well, this has been a great discussion. Liam, Kieran, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Joining me now to round out some of the headlines this week is our news briefer, Trisha Ballion. Hi, Trisha. Hey. So what headlines do you have for us this week? So first off, Liz Truss resigns after six chaotic weeks. President Xi Jinping is expected to secure a third term. Brazil's Amazon faces severe drought. And Pakistan sets a five-year ban on former Prime Minister Imran Khan holding office. Some very important stories to cover. Let's start with the political shakeup in the United Kingdom. Yes, so 44 days after becoming the UK's Prime Minister, Liz Truss has announced her resignation from the position. In the wake of the death of Queen Elizabeth II and the failure of Truss's tax cut plans, she has stated that she cannot deliver on the mandate on which she was elected. Eyes are on the UK as the successor for Truss, Rishi Sunak, is set to be sworn in on Tuesday, October 25th. A situation that devolved almost devastatingly fast. And you mentioned the Congress in China? Yes, so as President Xi moves to break a long-standing tradition by possibly securing a third term, this could lead to a new era for China's international presence. Xi's plans are speculated to include no longer focusing on domestic politics, his political loyalists being promoted to government positions, and dissenting voices being removed. 
International affairs researchers predict that this will lead to future ideological clashes between China and the United States. An event that will definitely play a major role in the future. And you mentioned the Amazon rainforest? So over the past six months, the areas surrounding the Amazon River have experienced record-breaking floods that left many communities severely damaged. Now, those same areas are facing some of the worst droughts seen in decades. Most of these regions are not connected by roads, making waterways the predominant method for transporting fuel and food. This has left many citizens without necessities and no solid timeline for when operations will be running again. And we can only hope that those communities are getting the support that they need. And our final headline. So after news of Imran Khan's unlawful selling of Pakistani state gifts and concealing assets, Pakistan's election officials have banned Khan from office and stated that he will be tried in a court of law. This has rallied many of Khan's supporters as they come together to protest their anger outside of the capital. The decision is likely going to deepen the persistent political turmoil Pakistan has been facing as of late. Thank you very much for coming on, Trisha. Thank you for having me. Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. The show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew. Executive producer Jasmine DeLeon, associate producers Eric Bunce and Hamza Khan, technical producers Andrew Okulia and Bobby Kyle, and of course, your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by Seen Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.